0: Welcome to the Global Enquirer. I'm your host, Nick Mortensen. The Global Enquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that explores case studies to show how global trends are affecting real lives. Today, we'll be taking a look back at our season so far and looking how the various global trends we've discussed this season play into each other. I'm here with researchers Tyler Hinkle, new researcher Carol Kraling, Katya Sankow, and new researcher Emmy Lockwood to discuss our episodes this season. Let's start with you, Katya. Can you talk about trophy hunting, what trends we saw there?
1: Trophy hunting. Um, I really enjoyed that episode. That was an episode that you did with uh, Roma and Walter. um, And I I just thought it was really interesting and really topical, especially because um, the the World Cup is coming up so quickly and we just had the Olympic Games over the the winter. Um, And so pretty much it brought up the political context of um, hosting a a major athletic event in a, a politically controversial context.
2: So historically, governments have wanted to host these major events as a way to portray themselves in a more positive light on an international scale. So while Russia is facing all of these controversies, they want the opportunity to kind of showcase themselves the way that they want to be seen by other international actors. And one of the ways that Putin and his government see that they can do this is by hosting the World Cup.
1: Do we allow Russia to get the traffic and the attention, even in in spite of all of these controversies? How do you Guys, feel about letting this socially controversial country um, host this competition in spite of everything that's surrounding Russia right now?
2: I think that hosting the World Cup is um, like a sign of long term prestige or like economic prosperity. Just because, like we've seen in like Rio Olympics, South Africa World Cup, um, previously that these major like international sporting events don't actually lead to long term growth in the country.
3: They will not benefit financially from the World Cup, um, so it takes a bit of um, convincing for a state to say that uh, the people are going to benefit materially from this, as we've seen historically, that that's really not the case. Uh, you can think specifically back to Brazil, um, when they had a lot of long-term issues following the World Cup, even though some short-term economic improvement might have occurred. Uh, it's fair to say that oftentimes the people really don't benefit from this.
4: I would say, though, like, even if it doesn't necessarily mean that the country is headed towards, you know, economic prosperity, certainly it does mean something to the world And you see countries like China that for so long wanted to host the Olympic Games and they saw that as a massive achievement and they kind of thought that that
2: would change how the world views them. It's still about putting a positive spin on the country or the city or the leader um, as as somehow benevolent or or just not as bad as they're being made out to be in the international community. Um, So that said, I I think that 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 sense of trying to put a positive spin on it is heightened when you're in this moment of controversy.
4: So it certainly matters and is something to consider when we're thinking about where we allow, um, what countries we allow to host these uh, global sporting events.
1: I think it was a big deal for Putin, especially on his agenda. He has this, this pretty big agenda and it's growing. By the year, um, and I think it was a big deal for him to host it in Crimea, the, the last one of the games in um, Crimea. Um, and also, I'd, I'd just like to talk quickly about the Skripal case and the poisoning. Since this controversy, since this case, which it hasn't been proved yet if the poison came from Russia, um, I think that you know, so many channels are closing between the US and the West and Russia that this would provide a really great opportunity to open the channels that have completely closed. Um, this, the, the take that I think that the researchers took in the Global Enquirer was that pursuing an isolationist policy towards Russia is a good reaction to social measures like this
3: coming out of the UK in fact uh, we saw this um, take place because they came out recently and said that they note that a lot of problems are going on in Russia and how is it possible to kind of take down this um, this image fest that you could say uh, this propagation um, idea that they're trying to use through the World Cup because it's clear that Russia notes these problems they want to improve their international image so how how can they kind of uh, avoid Russia from using this tournament as a tool is that the British government says we're not sending any uh, top officials to Russia to represent the United Kingdom, um, to kind of take away that legitimacy from the tournament. And then some commentators is, have even gone far enough to say that why not punish Russia to the extreme and take this tournament away? Now, I don't think that's a realistic thing that's going to happen between now and then, as that's... Um, fastly approaching. But um, I think it's interesting that people are toying with that idea of just um, taking the tournament away from them entirely.
0: We've seen a lot of time sort of countries across the world taking a look at other states and sort of seeing their internal politics or their you know, in- internal laws, internal affairs, sort of going, going out of the way that they don't approve of either because violations of human rights, violations of how a government ought to be run, violations of sort of Ideologically or even pragmatically, how a state is supposed to be run, and I Emmy, mean, we kind of saw this in the episode "Presidents Persist." So, like, do you kind of have anything else to add on there? Like, kind of talking more broadly about nations and their internal affairs, doing things that other states might not like or even that their own people might not like. I mean, is there any sort of significance there? Was there anything we can add on to that?
2: Yeah. So, in "Presidents Persist," um, it discussed uh, the long-term trend of um, the ten of the. A- Longest 29 rulers of nations come from African nations. So uh, the case study was on um, Rwanda, uh, specifically Paul Kagame. And their policy, um, it's a little bit more repressive. Um, You wouldn't call it um, a democracy by any means. Kagame's state is first and foremost an authoritarian state. There are other political parties, but they all must register to um, act legally in the country. And he has been known to repress dissidents, repress uh, political parties that push for democracy. Press freedom in Rwanda is almost non-existent. Uh, However, the external influences like the UN, US... um Western powers have very little uh, influence over um, Rwanda or Paul Kagame because they tend to prefer um, stability rather than um, a representative democracy. A
0: big sort of thing we've discussed, like throughout the episodes you've seen here, uh, is internal repressions of people uh, with Russia's anti LGBTQ laws, I mean, with everything you sell there, and presidents persist, and as well as kind of the difficulties of nations that are advancing policies that to other states may be somewhat unsavory or difficult to approve of or just kind of outside of what other nations consider acceptable. Kara, in Culture Offline, we talked a lot about kind of how nations justify these, like, these very similar repressive policies, how they justify them, but also their use like, and how these, like, how these policies are actually used and what uh, agendas and causes they're actually advancing. Can we you talk a little bit more about that?
4: So one thing this episode focused on a bit was the fact that uh, when we talk about cultural protectionism, we often focus on like authoritarian regimes we focus on uh, things going on in Iran North Korea China uh, but the fact that these these sorts of policies exist um, in most countries to uh, in most instances on a smaller scale um, but in places like Iran, which we we talked a lot about in this episode uh, their, their effort to suppress Western education, they uh, ban the teaching of English um, in public schools, and which is really an issue for them because uh, like on the internet, for instance, like they're, they, they're trying to create these restrictive measures, um, but it's really hard to regulate the internet. Also just the fact that younger generations have access to things that, are, that can't be regulated as, as easily as older ones, and the people that are in place making these policies Aren't, don't have the right mindset of uh, how to how to control these things. The line that the Iranian government uses is that they're trying to protect the, the culture of their country, they want to keep their uh, Persian-Iranian culture, um, they want to avoid the toxic Western imperialism, but this is really just a way for them to control their people. Um, and in a lot of instances, the policies that they use uh, to restrict... like such as uh, their effort to restrict the internet, are not reflective of the actual Iranian culture. Um, So the efforts of the government to suppress the people are not reflective of what the people actually
0: want. So we're seeing here in like all three of these episodes, so with uh, culture offline, we saw the repression or the restriction of information to sort of protect a country's own interests or for the regime to protect itself. In Presidents Persist, we saw internal repressions and kind of a lack of regard for external opinions to protect the regime itself, and sort of protect protect the perpetuity of the president. And in trophy hunting, we saw Russia, you know, trying to engage international opinion, but only in a way that selectively makes it look better, makes it look better both internally, and kind of helps people with their own national worldview. The trend I'm kind of seeing here is that these nations, and you know, many, many of these trends, you know, regardless of sort of continent or context, you're seeing the use of internal repressions to protect the regime or to protect the self-image. And in all these instances, you have repressions being justified or repressions sort of being accepted under the guise of this is securing the existence of the state, this is securing the existence of the regime, or this is securing our own self-image. But Tyler, in the episodes that you've done, do you kind of see any instances of people fighting back against repression and being successful?
5: I mean, you definitely have people who are um, underrepresented in uh, everyday society and culture who are, who are definitely fighting back. But the problem is, is that um, a lot of times they may be thinking they're fighting against a people, but really what they're fighting against is a system. And it's a lot harder to get rid of a system that silences their voices than to get rid of a people who causes them to be silent. So with the Native Americans, they were able to get their recognition at the federal level, but at the same time they had to make a lot of concessions. So a lot of like their decisions were being made for them by the federal government by these people who um, you know they may they may know nothing about you know the, the tribes or they, they may think that they're just um, they're going to go and build a, a big casino and gamble and, and ruin I say ruin um, the area. Um, so I think that's a big problem. Is that yeah they 're definitely fighting back like with the Native Americans and then even in Mexico, where we see the, the those Desperacidos, where people are are trying to make uh, a point of, of trying to find their families who who have just disappeared
4: Violence has increased in the country while human rights violation persists um, and the second will be that soldiers and also organized crime uh, and all those who commit uh, human rights violations and atrocities are rarely held accountable for the abuses. So I think that altogether that has led to a really concerning um,
2: situation in, in terms of security and human rights in the country.
5: There's a system of violence going on in, in each case. In Mexico, it's much more a system of physical violence where we are seeing a, a large amount of death. But in in America, with the Native Americans, is a system of of violence that, that you know, it, it causes a, a like a voicelessness where, um, but I, I guess, you know, we kind of see this too in, in, in Russia where we talked about how, you know, the people who are identified as LGBT, they, they feel like they can't even show that identity because that doesn't fit with the identity of what is Russia. And same with Native Americans, they feel like they can't be Native American at at, at certain aspects because maybe that's not what Virginia is. You know, uh, maybe maybe the idea for Virginia and maybe even for Mexico um, is the idea is that like the identity is of the the colonizer. Uh, we talked about this in the Native American e- episode, and so yeah, no, I definitely agree with what you're saying. It's like it's securing identity. I think that's the big idea, um, and the problem of of trying to change that ad- identity is the deeply ingrained systems that, that reinforce that identity.
0: And during working the episode, there was a soundbite that didn't quite make into the episode, but is, was quite powerful. Um, when you kind of asked the people there their feelings on the Lewis and Clark statue in Charlottesville, can you kind of talk mm-hmm. more about that and kind of where that took you and kind of where that, where that conversation and discussion went?
5: We didn't include this because it's a bit of a touchy subject, but we we did an episode on this earlier um, back in September uh, about, about Charlottesville and what happened in August. So the way that the, the tribe that we went, the Rappahannock tribe, the way they saw the statues and in, including um, the statue of um, George Rogers Clark he's the conqueror of the Northwest. It shows him he's right across from the corner. He's like attacking a, a group of Native Americans. They saw all those as, as that they should be there because if you were to get rid of them, maybe it's, you know, getting rid of uh, what a history that's being shown there, so maybe if you get rid of the statue of George Rogers Clark, people will forget that George Rogers Clark was a guy who lived here and he killed Native American people. The Charlottesville thing, just like everywhere else, uh, to me, regardless of what it stood for, it's still part of history. And you you can't learn from not having history, that's the whole point of having history. So that a statue has been
2: sitting there for for over a hundred years and has never offended anyone before, all of a sudden
5: now it offends people, and then to have people, our government, to take it down or remove it, to me is being uh, it's just not being ethical because that is history, regardless of what your opinion of it is. That part of it is I don't I don't get it and I don't understand it and I don't agree with it. I mean
2: that's just my take. <laughs> Well, it's it's to, kind of like what they did to us. They took our history, they captured it and they hid it. So yeah. no one would know who we were. So they could continue to oppress us and try to make us think we were something else. <laughs> oh, <been> under control. <laughs> and so that's the same thing. Taking down the Confederate statues is trying to control what people know about the Civil War. And and that's just wrong. Okay. But,
5: those two statues too, like they're part of four statues that are in Charlottesville, put up by um, a guy named Paul McIntyre. Um, the other two are actually about Native Americans. Um, mm-hmm. One of them's Lewis and Clark, and it's got like a cowering uh, Sacagawea with them. Mm-hmm. And then the other ones, um, uh, George Clark, and he's called Conqueror of the Northwest, and he's like leading this attack on a group of Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the ones no one can, no one talks about,
3: All right?
2: Well, that was probably a pretty accurate depiction of what he did, you know, Um, but does it offend me? No. It's history. It's history. history. It shouldn't be taken down.
5: And where minority cultures inside of a a very mixed cultured society like the United States, they won't, they'll, they'll, they'll be infighting for the voice because it feels like there's only one platform that they can use, and if someone's using it, then the other group can't. And so it feels like they're they're put, put against each other.
0: Yeah, so we're kind of seeing a duality here where in the episodes we've talked about with Kara, Katya, and Emmy, you have these clampdowns on sort of free expression. You have these clampdowns on identity or either be a by national et, ethnic or even historical identity. And the justification being, we are clamping down this information, we are restricting these liberties to protect you. But here, in, and with Tyler stuff, you have these people fighting to speak out they're fighting to actually have their stories be told and they're fighting very hard and yet they're having difficulties speaking out well you know people on the other side of the continent are being told to sort of stop talking and sort of accept what and sort of accept your lot because this is what you need to be safe why is that like why is that duality does it have to do with societies to take place in is it just a different sort of lived experiences and is a different lived experience in these different locations or kind of why in some places people are clamoring to sort of speak out, in other places people are clamoring to, to shut up. I
5: think in both cases people are clamoring to speak up. It's just the fact that maybe we're seeing it more here about the people who are trying to speak up. A lot of people don't know about there being Native American tribes in Virginia or there being people who are disappearing in Mexico. It's just because us being close to it, maybe we're more, we see it as more relevant, more like we, we see it as more active. Maybe those things are going on in Russia or in Rwanda, but we just don't see it because we're not as close to it.
2: I also think it's like a question of time, because um, you you think of like Native American history, like, and American uh, colonized history, um, that's been going on for like over 400 years, think about it in Virginia.
4: No, I agree, I think if we look back um, in, in Iran, we see there's a, a movement that's Uh, started several years ago uh, which is uh, women you know protesting against uh, the the dress code that exists there and taking off the their hijab um, and and being very vocal about you know not thinking that that they should have to adhere to that uh, dress code and I think in part it's because uh, the society they live in like it's it's come to a, a breaking point like they don't they see that violation of their you know, right to express their identity in whichever they, way they want. They see themselves as having been oppressed for so long um, that I think, I think it has to, yeah, I, I agree with you that I think it has to do with how long it's been happening and them realizing that if they, you know, they might risk their own safety, but they, they see the benefit for uh, potential future generations.
0: And throughout all, like many episodes we have here, and then we're speaking more broadly, the Internet plays a big role. I mean, in culture offline, that was like the proliferation, the spread of the Internet and the information dissemination through that was a very, very large driver. And even all these stories we hear about, I mean, Katya, you know, with everything we're seeing in Russia, you know, those stories, those experiences and even knowledge of those laws was spread through the Internet, indirectly or not. And everything we've seen in Rwanda as well, I mean, you know, usually comes to us either by international news or through the internet or through everything else. And it seems to be a common thread that's tying everything together, where people's lived experiences are sort of coming up to our faces. You know, we can be an ocean away, we can be a continent away, we can be very, very far away. But these people's lived experiences come to us through videos, Facebook posts, Twitter posts, anything else. And I guess what I'm trying to ask here is... Is the internet either enriching lives or is it destabilizing lives? Because you, you see cases where the governments are trying very, very hard to work against the internet and, it, and its forces, um, you know, create issues. But Cara, with tele empowerment, we're seeing the internet being used to bring about very positive social change. Do you think that the internet is acting as something that's enriching or something that's disruptive?
5: I mean, I think like in order to make change, you have to be a bit disruptive. So I think it's definitely being disruptive in itself. Like it's it's the nature of just changing people's minds to opening them up to, to think that they don't know what's going on. Um, and in that, it's creating change, but at the same time, something that's disruptive, it's hard to get back to something that's stable. So I guess it's the question of like, where do we go from here?
4: I also think there was kind of a difference in uh, the two episodes that I looked at, which was um, with Culture Offline, the government was attempting to regulate the internet. The internet isn't something that can be regulated. The internet is growing beyond our capacity to, you know, understand how to control people's usage of it. Whereas in tele empowerment, uh, they were using technology to, you know, provide uh, me- uh, diagnosis and medicine to uh, these marginalized communities. They were successful. They were able to. Um, get medicine to people who otherwise couldn't have gotten it. Um, through what was important was they had to build that community of trust to get it to those people, um, so the people could trust that the way they were receiving it, even though they were in many like they were distant from the people who were helping them. There is an importance of understanding, you know, the place of technology in society, both so these poorer communities can benefit from it when they have that um, available to them, but also so people can. Try to fight against instances of, you know, government oppression uh, through technology. It certainly is much harder now for states to sort of enforce their cultural policies, and um, indeed to finding models that are also going to work uh, in the online space.
0: So when your hardware manufacturer is a you know, player in, in the cultural exchange, when your software manufacturer is player in the cultural exchange, when Google, YouTube, these profit-based businesses are players in the cultural exchange, life becomes a lot harder.
1: But at the same time, I still think that there's this type of peer regulation on the internet because looking at a cultural context at the LGBT um, movement in Russia, it's pretty much self-regulated. It's not spreading too far, and that's just because, contextually, within Russia, Russia is a very masculine society. It's very central to its identity. Um, it's, it's everywhere within the identity, and questions of sexuality are either dismissed or uh, completely frowned upon. And so we can see that like this is why the LGBT movement hasn't spread so far and why there hasn't been immense internal backlash against the legislation, Um, especially via online venues. Russia does have some control over the Internet, but through very interesting practices, um, instead of completely blocking certain websites. So they pretty much just buy out certain websites or certain domains, um, and they kind of nudge other people out uh, based on that. From a cultural context, it's never been accepted to speak out against such an issue, and so it's reflected on the Internet anyway.
0: And even just talk about the, uh, the internet more broadly. I mean, obviously, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook and the founder of Facebook, uh, has testified before Congress. There's, there's been the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal with data from Facebook users being used to specifically target people through um, more like political ads that are at best in a moral gray, immoral and legal gray area, and somewhat dubious there. And we're kind of seeing just Facebook and its use in social media more broadly come, especially in Europe and the United States, become hotly more contested as people are realizing to how, to what extent, you know, these social media platforms have their data and how they're selling it and how they're widely proliferating it. So just kind of bring this even outside of Russia and bring it outside of government control. What kind of trends are we seeing here with people, you know, interacting with social media, which they have used in the past to kind of enrich their lives and to bring about positive social change, but now it's becoming increasingly clear that these social media outlets aren't exactly on your side or aren't exactly always working to your benefit.
1: Honestly, I've seen a huge trend of complacency among youths with the information that's being sold. Um, a lot of people that I've talked to, a lot of my peers know about the information being sold, know about so much of their life being easily accessible to people who are looking to purchase their, <laughs> their information, but they're totally fine with it. I know myself, like, I, I don't care if they have my birthday or... Um, I don't know, just some random pictures of me. Uh, I don't think that that's too harmful to me. But I know that the generation, I think Generation X and the ones preceding those, those are the ones who are really um, afraid for their information. Those are the ones who are really protective. And those are the, uh, the generation that the senators <laughs> that were doing the prosecution, that were interviewing Mark Zuckerberg, um, or that were examining Mark Zuckerberg, That's the generation that they come from. They exhibited a lot of confusion, I think, with um, their understanding of Facebook. And I I think it emphasizes the gap between us and and our parents' generation.
2: Another trend with Facebook in particular is how it can be used as such an efficient weapon. Um, It's so cheap to buy advertising. It's so cheap to spread information, like, the way that the algorithms work is that Facebook posts, even if it's a dislike, even if it's a comment saying this is, like, misinformation, whatever it may be, um, it gets shared to more people, uh, so the more interactions a post receives, then it's, um, the messages spread further along.
0: And... You sort of playing off what Cate said, there's a generational divide. And I mean, you, you see it on Facebook as young people are evacuating the site in mass as their parents finally start using it sort of more widely. But, you know, that's funny to look at, but at the same time, that's a very true thing. Just because, you know, especially us, people in our age group, people younger than us and people slightly older than us, they have grown up with technology. In many cases... There are probably people alive right now who don't remember a time when Facebook or any social media wasn't a widely proliferated mainstream sort of major facet of people's lives. And I guess another question to ask is, you know, we've talked about the Internet being potentially a disruptive um, tool either to government hegemony or even social movements in general. Is there a generational gap? Does that generational gap in kind of the usage and understanding of the internet and more specifically social media contribute to whether or not it enriches or disrupts kind of the day-to-day life of a society or helps or hinders social movements throughout the world?
5: I think it's slightly generational, but at the same time I think it's closeness. So like if you're pretty used to using it and like you've been using it for a long time, I think if you have vested interest in something like Facebook, You may not care that much, just like many people who were around may not care. But at the same time, people who may not have as much of a knowledge about what's going on or maybe they don't have been using for very long and maybe are our age, maybe they are also not very, um, they don't like what's going on with Facebook and all the privacy stuff. So I wouldn't say it's exactly, I wouldn't put it on generation exactly. I'd say it's more closeness and being able to use it and like how um, your knowledge on it 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 is attached to to generation, but I wouldn't specifically say it's all generational.
1: Well, I would argue that the older generations are more vulnerable to what Emmy was talking about earlier, like the weaponization of information, just because our generation grew up learning how to discern between true and false information. Um, Like if my mom shows me something ridiculous um, and I tell her, no, mom, it's a meme, (laughs) like (laughs) this is not real, um, she's just not used to that. That's that's totally important to her. And so I think that knowing that the older generations are more susceptible to, um, you know, kind of absorbing false information, um, that was totally weaponized in the 2016 elections. And um, also in, in other parts of the world, like in Bulgaria, um, it just, Russia released this this dossier that completely outlined how to Um, just over-exaggerate information, make up polls, create Facebook groups. It was a 30-page dossier sent directly to the candidate, and it was, the main target of these were, like, 40, 50-somethings.
0: And big question I kind of want to get to here is, through our episodes, through sort of international events and international elections especially, just more broadly speaking, you're having a lot of disruptions. You have Cambridge Analytical Case, you have the you know, the US presidential election to whatever extent you want to believe it to, but you have to admit that to some extent misinformation on the internet did play a role, you know, for both sides of the camp. And all the episodes we've talked here, Iran, Russia, Rwanda, I guess to a lesser extent, but still a significant one, and even sort of uh, here at home with, you know, the Native American tribes, you're having misinformation information that is being specifically curated or overstated to fulfill an agenda or fulfill a particular worldview or idea of the world Are these issues going like are these growing pains like once these older generations who are getting on Facebook just now As they kind of learn as they kind of do what younger people have done already and learn how to discern stuff sort of intuitively and automatically will we stop having these issues like will there be a point in time where the internet is nowhere near as disruptive as it is just because people learn it? Or is this just kind of the reality that we have going, you know, is this the reality we have to live on from here on out?
5: I think a lot of it has to do with learning it. Because, like, the reason why I push back on generations is because there's a lot of people where I grew up, it's very rural, and they fall for this stuff, too. And it's just because they're not exactly knowledgeable about the internet. Um, And just like older people who are not very knowledgeable about stuff on the internet. So I think a lot of it has to do with, again, closeness and being able to know how to use it. But at the same time, you know, if they don't have, if they don't grow up knowing the right way to do it and knowing that, because if they grow up just being like, okay, this is just normal, like accept all this information, then I don't think anything's going to change. I think there needs to be some sort of movement or, or program to like make these people realize what's going on.
4: I actually think it goes beyond a little bit. Like we're a younger generation. We grew up with the internet. We understand it. Um, because I think that a large problem is that, um, us younger, younger people are more often going to the internet to look at our news. And that means, you know, we're using sites like Facebook. What does Facebook do? They, they see what sort of news you gravitate towards. They give you more of the same thing. Uh, we end up, you know, consuming, we might be able to tell like what are, uh, you know, good sites to go towards, but like, you know, if we have certain political viewpoints and we're reading the same you know, from the same viewpoints, and we're not, we don't have the experience of our parents of turning on the TV and only having, like, so many channels and being able to get, you know, maybe uh, more, you know, we're receiving uh, news in a similar way as people with different, you know, political viewpoints, so it's, you know, easier to discuss things, and I think that in this way, the internet can kind of help add to the polarization um, of people in the country as we're kind of in this this echo chamber just repeatedly, you know, seeing our own viewpoint um, fed back to us.
0: So, polarization and also, you know, people looking at uh, internet, particularly Facebook for the news, um, bringing to the live episode, uh, through at least the past year and a half, two years, we have seen a lot of graphic photos from the Syrian Civil War. You know, you have photos of children who were caught in bombings, you know, in the middle of shell shock, you know, them looking directly at the cameras. You have footage, or, or like, you know, yeah, pictures and footage of entire neighborhoods bombed out, destroyed everything else. And there's been very, very strong reactions to these images coming out on social media, coming out on news feeds, coming out on sort of news headlines across the world. But in the case of live, so if we talk about humanitarian imp- interventions, do, do we really think that the wide-ranging broad, wide broadcasting of these images, of these graphic depictions of what's going on has actually had a positive effect or even Made people more willing to act, or is it just made people more willing to talk about things?
5: Well, I mean, this is a big thing. I mean, this is with a lot of social movements. Like, the um, I mean, it's all I won't, I won't name me specifically because it might get heated with something, but like maybe you watch it and maybe you like it, you share it, and you feel like you've done something. Um, you haven't donated anything, you haven't called your senator or anything like that, but you feel like you know you've done this on social media, maybe you've done something. I think that's true for a lot of people. Um, Maybe who people who are maybe wouldn't do anything in the first place. That may happen, but I'd say for people who already have a vested interest, that may push them further to want to do something. So yeah, I, I guess it's it's the question of like how do we get those people who are on the fringes and they're going to share this to want to do more? I, I don't know, but
2: yeah, I agree with you. In that, like, social media's power is sometimes like too. Um... It's like a bit exaggerated. Um, like for people who already agree with a statement, then it'll only reaffirm that that view, but it wouldn't um, like convert someone of an opposing view. And I, I think in um, at least in Rwanda's case with the genocide, um, and this is like pre like Twitter, Facebook, pre social media. Um, the U.S. gave a a, a ton of money. Uh, it was like sixteen times the amount of money that would have cost to like stop the genocide, they gave that equivalent of money afterwards. So even without um, social media addressing the Rwandan genocide, they received an enormous amount of
1: aid. So I, this isn't a really good way to look at humanitarianism, but if you were to look at humanitarianism as a supply chain, um, because pretty much it is connecting donors to areas of crisis and areas of need. Um, I, I think that the images do shorten the supply chain and maybe make things more uh, efficient just because like, um, the only reason that humanitarianism got boosted and, and became a legitimate field was because celebrities started endorsing certain causes and publicizing images back in the 80s. Um, and so now it's coming right to people's computers and um, it, it's getting more support from important faces, when you see so many of these images, when you see um, just the same tragedies over and over again, then you feel like it's more normalized, and, oh, it's just another Syrian child, oh, it's just another Arab child, oh, it's just another African child suffering. And I, I, this could become harmful in years ago.
2: So going back to like Rwanda and this current government state status, um, like speaking about stability, while Paul Kagame has given the country like 28 years of like relative peace and like economic prosperity, li- lifting the nation from, um, you know, from the aftermath of a genocide, Paul Kagame and his government are all Tutsi. So, in place, um, the previous re- regime was a Hutu nationalist, and that's been replaced by a Tutsi like regime. So, I see the issue um, as like the issues between the Hutu and the Tutsi haven't, like, resolved, and it's only been postponed, because once the Hutu become frustrated with the Tutsi and are more vocalized about um, their oppression, then I'm sure there's, like, it's a time bomb that something's going to... Kaltibame wouldn't just step down from his power.
5: I had to say, too, with the whole social media thing, I think that, like, what's going on with, like, the advertisement, I think that's really big, and so, but I guess part of, like, the first part of like a longer process. I mean after you see it there should be a discussion and the problem with the internet is you have internet trolls um, and so that may promote like very like vicious acts and people may not know that like people may be joking or something like that or um, you know something like that so it doesn't really promote a good environment for communication so that's something that maybe could be worked on Um, and then also Providing options of what could be done, like what groups are available to make change. Who can you donate to? And so just, I mean, I'll be honest, like there's been things where I've watched about um, the amount of people who still don't have homes in Haiti after the earthquake. And I don't know what I can do because I wasn't told what I can do. I mean, I've had a discussion. I had the second part of it, but I've not been told, like, what can I personally do? So I think that connecting people with those things could really help.
1: So going back to the popular images on Facebook of like suffering children, um, it's because they're becoming so popular. There's been an act like this huge increase in voluntourism le- uh, recently, and I just read about the harms of the voluntourism because when you drop two thousand dollars on a one week trip to a small island where you'll take you'll maybe provide some uh, assistance. Um, you're not really doing anything, you're not promoting any long-term fixes. Um, That $2,000 that you spent to be there to take a picture with a suffering child could have easily been allocated towards a direct investment, towards providing better aid to these countries.
0: So a big thing we've seen throughout the season is internal perceptions and internal rhetoric. And uh, in the case of many episodes, you have people trying to speak out but being quashed by their governments. You also have people accepting sort of impositions on their liberty to either defend uh, under the guise of defending the regime, defending the culture, or defending a national image, or even a national memory that people find best. At the same time, you have other instances where people are trying their best to speak out. And the thing tying many of these cases together is the internet. These are how these stories are shared. These These are how people... Share their stories, These are how, this is how we get information, this is how we get a better idea of what's happening across the Atlantic, what's happening across the Pacific, what's happening in completely different continents, countries, cultures, anywhere else. It's been used as a force of good, but it's also been used as a vehicle to bring further oppressions and to further step on the rights and liberties of other people. It's difficult. You have the internet, either by generational divide or by misuse of information contributing to political instability across the world, but you also have the internet being used to enrich lives. You have the internet both calling attention to various issues across the world, but also reducing the sophistication of the discussion surrounding it and making it all the harder to actually pursue viable courses of action to solve the problem. It's difficult. And indirectly or not, the main thing tying all these episodes together is the internet, technology, and global communications. As time goes on, as people get more familiar with these tools, we'll have to decide what needs to be done with them. Is further regulation the way to do it, or do we simply need to learn how to better use these tools? Is the onus on individuals or on governments? These are all very difficult questions to ask, but running away from them is not the way to go. I want to thank everybody here for the work on the episode, the work on listening, and all their great questions and great answers. And that'll be it for today's episode. If you enjoyed us, please rate us five-star over on iTunes or share us on Facebook. Please join us next week when we sit down with various UVA study abroad students to see how their experiences were changed by various global trends. As always, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.